You're listening to an audio message from Harvest Bible Chapel in Granger, Indiana. For more information, visit our website at harvestgranger.org. If you will, go ahead and open up your Bibles. Get them turned to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. We are going to look at verses 8, or chapter 8, verses 12 through 17 this morning. Uh, It's been an honor to get to know your pastor, and you are truly blessed to have a pastor that loves the Lord as your pastor does. Love having Zach and Brooke at Cedarville. It's been an honor to get to know them, a lot of fun to get to know them as well. And so I would ask that you would, every time you remember Christian education, you hear the word university, or you think biblical worldview, would you just say a short prayer for all the Christian universities that are out there? We're living in a culture right now that is going in the opposite direction from a biblical worldview. And I believe one of the first battles is going to be at the universities and in Christian education all across our country. And at Cedarville, we don't just want to exist 20 to 30 years from now. We really want to see God do a movement so that the students that go out from our place in over 100 degrees of study will go out on fire for God to use whatever he's called them to do vocationally, whatever gifts he's given them, to change the world with the gospel of Jesus Christ. We believe in God's infallible and errant word in an exclusive Savior and in a world that needs to hear the gospel message before they die. It's not good news if it doesn't get there in time. And so we are passionate about standing for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. And we don't want to just exist. We want to thrive. So would you just pray that God would send a revival, not just to us, Uh, but to every Christian university to affect the young people who are studying at those locations all across the country. Would you agree to do that as often as the Lord brings it to mind? I appreciate that. I love to talk about Cedarville, but I'm not here to do that. I'm here to preach. And so I want to preach a message that the Lord has laid on my heart out of Romans chapter 8, verses 12 through 17, titled, The Spirit of Adoption. Uh, We are often known for our pro-life stances, and that is great, and we should be. But we have to recognize that if we are going to have pro-life stances, we also have to be willing to step up and to adopt and to create a culture, a fostering culture, a culture of a pro-life area around us. And so here is a message uh, out of a passage that talks about adoption. And so let me start it off in this way. It was January of 2005. Was at work. I was walking down a staircase as I was working there at Southwestern Seminary in Fort Worth, Texas. My phone began to vibrate in my pocket, and as most of you do, I assume you, you pull it out and you look first to see who's calling. As I looked to see who was calling, it was my wife's aunt. Now, I don't know how close you are with your relatives through marriage and things of that nature, but I think this was the first time my wife's aunt had ever called me. She's called my wife before when I've been around, but but she doesn't call me, per se. And so I thought, "Uh uh-oh, something's wrong. So I swipe across to answer the phone call. And when I answer the phone call, the first words out of her mouth after hello is, I have a question for you. Do you want to adopt a little girl? Well, in my heart, the answer was yes. And theologically, the answer was yes. But I really believe it was the Holy Spirit that impressed upon me, before you answer this, you better call your wife and talk to her. And so I I told Aunt Deb, I said, I need to call Joy and talk to her, and I'll call you back here in just a few minutes if that's okay. And she said it was. And so I called my wife, told my wife what had just happened. And as most of you guys know, my wife had all these questions that I didn't even bother to think to ask before I said I need to call my wife. And I said, I don't know. This is all I know. You want me to call her back and find out the details? And we agreed to go forward with this. So I went to chapel there uh, at Southwestern, and, and the person who was leading in chapel that day He doesn't usually do this, but he said, if something's weighing on your heart, I want you to come down to the altar and pray about it. I said, okay. I said, God, I don't know what you're up to, but I'll come down. So I went down to the front. I was down there at the altar. This was before the sermon or everything. This was just in an opening prayer time, and I was kneeling at the altar, and I remember very distinctly what I prayed. Uh, You know, a lot of us would love for God to write answers in the clouds or send us a text message, but we know he doesn't work that way. And so I was there, and I was praying, Lord, I'm not asking for you to send me a text message. I'm not asking for you to do something to to reveal your will. I think this is biblical. I think this is good. I'm going forward with this. If you don't want me to, slam the door in my face. Give me that, that no, because I think this is a good godly purpose. I got up from the altar, and as I went back, I was sitting on this left-hand side about a a third to a half of the way back in that particular auditorium, the only person that I knew in Fort Worth at the time that had adopted a child had sat in my seat during the prayer time. Now, 
I'm not saying that that was a miracle of the Lord, but it certainly wasn't a coincidence either, right? And so I, I looked at the seat, and, and he had to just been oblivious because all of my stuff was under the seat. It was obvious there was somebody sitting in the seat. And so when I went back, I saw him. I sat down beside him, and I reached to grab all of that stuff out from under the seat to move it over. And he goes, oh, man, I don't, I'm sorry. I, I guess I didn't even look. And I said, no, I think there's another reason that you sat in this seat. I need to have dinner with you and your wife tonight. Me and my wife do if it's at all possible. And we went out to dinner, talked with him. To make a long story short, just give you some of the highlights, nine days from a phone call walking down the stairs, we were in a lawyer's office in another state signing paperwork for an adoption process. Now that is efficiency at its best, right? Nine months for most people, nine days. But the Lord did things along the way. Just to show his hand in this process, there was a moment where we called to get a home study and they said, you know, most people plan ahead for this. They don't just do this like a spur of the moment. We can't just, it's a month before we can get out there. And we said, okay, look, just whatever you can do. We're just trying to do this private adoption. And they called us back the next day and they said, you won't believe this. We've had two cancellations. We can be at your house first thing this morning. So what do you think we did? We did what probably some of you would do where you take things and stash it in a closet and then you lean back on that door to get it to close and you hope they don't open that one particular door to that one closet. And, and we were able to get that done. We called the doctor that we really wanted, the most recommended doctor. And when we called, the receptionist said, it, don't you know that most people get on the waiting list nine months ahead of time and then hopefully there's an opening by the time the child has been born for this particular pediatrician? And we just said, look, we're trying to adopt a child. We, didn't, we don't know all these things. We're new to this. We didn't have kids at the time. This would have been our first. And, and she said, hold on a second. She went back. She came back, got on the phone. She said, okay, you've got your doctor. How did you know Dr. Worsley was adopted? And he had been adopted as a baby. And so he agreed to be the pediatrician of record for us. And so two lawyers in two states conversing and getting paperwork filled out in nine days is miracle enough, right? I'm just kidding. If you're a lawyer in the audience, I'm just joking. But we go into this, uh, this uh, lawyer's office in Florida, and we lived in Texas at the time. We walked into the front doors, and they put us off into one room. They put the other uh, family into another room, and they were talking to them about what they were doing, making sure that they were of sound mind and all these type things. And I remember very distinctly that morning walking into a lawyer's office, and there was a little girl that didn't have my name. There was a little girl that I had absolutely no relationship with at that particular point. No legal rights, no legal anything. I sat in a room. They brought some paperwork in. I signed some paperwork, and there was a transaction that took place. And then they bring in this little girl. Uh, this little girl, when they bring her in, she has a new name. Her last name is now White, which is pretty cool because she lives at the White House no matter where we are, right? <laughs> Sorry, it's a bad joke, but i got to have fun up here, right? So... They hand me the little girl, and I remember I didn't have any kids. So guys, what do you do when you're holding a little girl? She was a month old for the first time. You've never had kids before. Well, I don't know anything about children, but I play football. And I know you don't fumble the football. And so you cover the point of the football with your fingers, and you tuck that football into your chest. And so there was a little girl tucked into the chest, not too hard, just right, with the tip uh, covered so that there would be no fumble in any case. And I grabbed a hold of the bags, and my mom had come down. It would have been the first grandchild, too. And so my mom and dad had come down, and so they were there. And I remember distinctly at that moment, my mom looked at me as I was holding the football, uh, my new little girl, and grabbing bags. And she said, do you want me to hold her? Now, I didn't understand everything that was in that statement, as some of you who are grandparents might understand. But I remember looking at my mom and looking down at my daughter, and I remember thinking to myself, how can I love such a girl that I've never had a relationship with or known in such this way? And I looked back up at my mother with tears in my eyes. I told my mom, Mom, she will never be as safe as she is right now in Daddy's arms. And that was true then. And as she grows up and gets a little farther away from home, it's still true now, even though I would love to have that little girl in my arms again. You've been there. How many of you have daughters, dads, moms? You know it. You are right there. You understand that emotion. Now, just to give you a little glimpse into me, I'm a fourth-degree black belt in martial arts. I was in the 1993 World Amateur Hall of Fame in karate. So if you mess with me, that's a bad idea, all right? I lived in Texas. I have a lot of guns. If you mess with my wife, that's a really bad idea, okay? 
But now if you mess with my daughter, that's God calling me to prison ministry. <laughs> From the inside. No doubt about it. That's God calling me to prison ministry from the inside. We're going to have cell groups and a gated community, and it'll all work out okay, but I know exactly what's going to happen there. That's the type of love, and Dad, you can testify, that is the type of love that you have for the little girl that God has granted you. Now, I learned so much about the theological views of adoption through the process that we went through. Thinking about how that legal transaction caused me to have a daughter with my name that would be mine forever that I loved and cared for in that way. And for us to think about what the text today is going to tell us about the fact that we have a heavenly father because I'm a flawed earthly human just like you and my love is imperfect and my love is not always as steadfast as it needs to be. And I am a sinful individual that has all the same sinful expressions that you would have. But we have a heavenly father that loves us with a perfect love, with an unending love with a steady love, a God who actually defines love. Love does not define him, but God is love. The, the word has meaning because God exists. That's the reason we have the very concept of love. That father has adopted us if we have repented of our sins and put our faith and trust in him to be sons of the king. That's the God that we're here to worship, to sing to, to listen to his word this morning that we are sons of the king with a father that loves us with a perfect love. Romans chapter 8. You can clap for that. That's good. <laughs> Romans chapter 8, verses 12 through 17. God's word. It's infallible. It's inerrant. It's as though Jesus or God himself is speaking it to us. So would you stand in honor of the reading of God's word as I read these verses to us this morning? So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. O oh God, as we look at your word, I pray that you would allow the words that come out of my mouth to be glorifying to you and edifying to each other. Lord, I pray that you would help us to catch a glimpse of the love that you have extended to us. God, I pray that you would challenge us to, by the power of the Spirit, put to death the sinful temptations that come our way. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This passage breaks down into two separate points. The first point, as you were to look at this, is that the Spirit leads to life. And you would see that in verses 12 and verses 13. It talks very specifically there about the fact that if by the power of the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. You will have life, and you will have life more abundantly. But as you look at that life, you have to understand the, the introductory portions of this particular chapter in Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 7, the commentators differ on what it's talking about in Romans chapter 7. Whether it's talking about a lost person that doesn't have the power of the Holy Spirit in them, or whether it's talking about a saved person who is trying, hypothetically, to do everything in their own power. But Romans chapter 7 has I, me, and my in it over 40 times. That I, me, and my over 40 times ends there in verse 25 where it says, Wretched man that I am, who will rescue me from this body of death? You've all been there. You've all been where you've tried to live life in your own power and tried to do what was right to only find out that our sinful nature continually tempts us, that along with the world and the culture in which we live and the temptations of the devil and his workers uh, causes us at that particular point to sin. We've tried by our own power to pull up our own bootstraps, to work our way into being a better person. And Paul here is saying at the end of chapter 7, that ends in wretched person that I am, who will rescue me from this body of death? Romans chapter 8, there's a transition. 
It begins there in verse 1 where it says, You are therefore a new creation in Christ. There is, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. It tells us there that it transitions to the portion of the Spirit. And in Romans chapter 8, the Spirit is talked about 22 times. And so you'll see that there's a, a vast contrast between I, me, and my, and between the Spirit and the power of the Spirit. And that plays into our text in verses 12 through 17. He begins, So then... So then takes into account all that we've just talked about as it leads up to what are we to do with this? What are we to do with the I, me, my that ends in wretched person? What are we to do where I struggle in my own power to find out I fail to then transition to doing things by the power of the Spirit? So then, brothers. Now the word brothers, we use it often casually. Uh, we use it, I use it a lot when I go to conventions or when I go to various places and I see somebody and when I see them, uh, their face lights up a little bit, they smile, I smile back, they begin to walk making that eye contact and I know I'm supposed to know who they are, but I have absolutely no clue. Have you ever been there? Perhaps you're there, even in a congregation as large as this, where you see somebody and you've seen them for a couple of weeks and they've talked to you and they know your name, but you have forgotten their name and it's been a couple of weeks, so you feel like if I ask them their name now, it's just going to be embarrassing and insulting to them. And so all of a sudden, they become what? They walk up to you, they extend that hand, and they say, good morning, and you say, hey, brother, how are you, right? You've been there? A couple of you have been there. I see some body language indicating that. That happens to us. We use that language sometimes. I, I, I live on a uh, university campus, and so I see another use for it sometimes too. I see these guys who look across these rooms, and they see these girls that are beautiful, and these girls love the Lord. And what do you do when you see a beautiful young lady that loves the Lord? You try to get to know her, right? And so they go up, and they begin talking to her, and, and I'll just overhear these conversations of, you are just so smart, and you are just so beautiful, and your eyes are like the stars in the heavens, and, and I just really want to get to know you, and, and would you go out with me on a date? And you see the girl getting a little fidgety and looking back at the guy and saying, you know, I, I really don't like you in that way. I like you like a... Oh, that's happened to some of you. Okay, yeah. <laughs> And so you've had that knife stuck in and twisted in that dagger of brotherly love. And you'll see the guy limp away, pulling the knife out of his back. As, I'm just kidding. But you, you know what I'm talking about when we think of the term brothers. We use it so casually. Hear what Paul is saying. Is he saying brothers and sisters in Christ, fellow believers of God, fellow People who have been redeemed by the blood of Christ. He is talking to believers. He is talking to brothers and sisters who are going to be with us, worshiping forever. So then, brothers, what does he say to these brothers in Christ? He reminds them that we are debtors not to the flesh. What does it mean we're debtors not to the flesh? Our first thought is the literal rendering of flesh. I am not a debtor to this skin that covers my bones and sinew and muscles and ligaments and arteries and veins. And Is that what he means? No. You know theologically what he means. Even if you can't articulate it theologically, you understand that what he's talking about is that sinful nature that pulls us to do things that are wrong. It's that sinful nature that we have inherited from Adam who sinned on our behalf, who sinned in the Garden of Eden, and from that sin, death entered the world, and also the relationship with Christ was lost, and from that point forward, all mankind have died, and from that point forward, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There is a universal problem with mankind in that we sin, and that you don't have to teach a baby to do what's wrong a baby clearly understands how to be selfish and a child understands how to do what's wrong you teach them and train them how to do what's right and so here he's saying we are not debtors to that sinful temptation to that sinful nature that pulls us to run away from God that pulls us to do things that are wrong don't feel like you are enslaved or that you are indebted to satisfy those urges or to fulfill those ungodly desires you are not a debtor to the flesh for to live according to the flesh. Verse 13, it tells us, For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. What does, what does that mean? Well, he clarifies on up in, in 8.5, and so it builds up to this, where he says, For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. What, what do you have your mind set on? 
Is your mind set on reading the Word of God, meditating on the Word of God, hiding God's Word in your heart so that you might not sin against Him? Or is your mind set on things that we would characterize as things of the flesh? Is your mind set on material possessions? Is your mind set on worldly things? Is your mind set on pleasures that are fleeting pleasures that may not be God-glorifying? Where do you focus your attention? Where do you focus your mind? What do you set your mind to do? Godly things? Worldly things? Things that glorify Christ or things of the flesh, our sinful nature? Here he's telling them, you are not a debtor to that flesh. You should not live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you're going to die. But if by the Spirit you put to death those deeds of the body, you will live. Here you've got to notice that it's, it's two-part. It's if by the Spirit, you. So I'm not saying that your salvation is cooperative in any way, shape, form, or fashion. We are saved by grace through faith, not of works, lest any man should boast, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. We are saved by what Jesus has already accomplished on the cross. It was a finished work. We don't add to it. But what we are saved to is we are saved to then do good things in our life. We are saved to a sanctification process that if we love God, it will result in things which please God and glorify God. And so here, what the text is saying to us is if by the Spirit you put to death those sinful temptations, that sinful nature. You have to do something. So it's important here to notice it's by the Spirit, so that means you can't do it by yourself. What happens if you try to live the Christian life by yourself without the power of the Holy Spirit, without renewing your mind daily in God's Word, without coming to church and having fellow believers? If you try to do it all in your own power, what happens? Romans chapter 7. Wretched person that I am, who will rescue me from this body of death? But it also says here, it's by the Spirit, you have to do things. So through the power of the Holy Spirit who lives within us, once we are a believer, we put to death the deeds of the flesh. We don't sit back and do nothing and say, Spirit, you take care of it. I'm out of this. It's all you now. Use the force, Luke, right? I mean, we don't do that. That's not what it's talking about. It's not a lazy version of Christianity. It is an active version of Christianity whereby the power living within us, which that power is truly God. That power is the power that was present in, in, cre present in creation. It's the power that raised Jesus from the dead. That power lives within us. We have the Holy Spirit of God living within us. We are the tabernacle of the Old Testament as God has transitioned that so that the power of the Spirit's with us. If by that power, so you can't say I don't have enough power, you don't, but you have the Holy Spirit. It's His grace, so glorious of a grace that lives within you. You then put to death the deeds of the body. Spirit and you, working together to put to death sinful temptation. It's still hard. Temptations are still very real to us. But the Bible tells us there's no temptation that's not common to man. We all feel them. The Bible also tells us that there is a way of escape from every temptation. God will not tempt us past what we can stand. Now, I know you're just like me, and sometimes those temptations feel like they are way too great. But the Bible is true, and it tells us there is a way of escape. And we have to claim these verses, and we have to live these verses, that by the power of the Holy Spirit, we can put to death the deeds of the body. There's another thing to notice here. It's by the Spirit and us, but it's to put to death those are strong words. It's not just to resist. It's not just to walk away. It's not just to leave. It is to put to death the deeds of the body. How often is it that in my life and in your life, I'm sure if you're like me, we make peace with our sin. We rationalize our sin. We try to say, well, we can handle just a little bit of our sin. And so we end up not putting it to death. We end up tolerating it. We end up tolerating it in small measures, to be sure, but we end up tolerating sin in our life rather than by the power of the Holy Spirit working to put it to death, which is what the text tells us to do here. By the Spirit, put to death those deeds of the body and you will live. That means we can't say to others, I was born with a temptation and I just have to live with it. I was born to like violence. But loving violence is not of God. I was born with a temper. But having a temper 
and losing your cool is not godly. I can't rationalize and say, this is just who I am. I have to look at God's word and say, this is who I need to be. And by the power of the Spirit, working together, I work to put to death those deeds of the flesh. Whatever your temptation, fill in the blank, it's there. And so, do we struggle with this? Yes, I confess to you, I am struggler number one with this. Why? It's because I like to think in my own mind I can handle everything by myself and need nobody. Anybody else out there like that? You are just super independent and you can handle it all. There are three of us in this room that are honest enough to say so. Um, I can prove it to you. We're most, more of you are like this. When you watch an Avengers movie, or if you're older like me, when you watched Rocky Balboa or some of those type movies, when you left the movie theater, did you ever imagine in your mind that you were the person that lost? No. You know, we, we leave some of those movies, and we even throw our popcorn away differently at the end. I mean, some guy gets in our way, and we're looking at him like, hey, didn't you see me up there on the screen? I'll take you out. You better move out of my way, right? I mean, we, you walk out of some of those movies with this macho thing going on inside, and you, you just have a whole new level of testosterone flowing through your body for some reason because you are thinking at that moment, I could take on the world. I could conquer it. I am Chuck Norris. I can beat the armies of three countries with a pocket knife and do it all in one day, right? I am Jack Bauer, 24 hours to save the world, no problem. What am I going to do with the extra six left over or whatever? We, we think that way because we have that American rugged individualism, that mentality that says, I can take care of it, I can save the world. We do it in our own households, we do it in our own spiritual life. We have that MMA mentality of we walk into a cage and we will conquer it. But the Bible tells us it's not a, I'm going to conquer it by myself. My, my weapons and tactics of war are not trying choke holes and arm bars my weapons and tactics of war is the power of the holy spirit living within me god's word transforming and renewing my mind so that through his power i can be a servant of the most high god and live a life that is glorifying to him that's what we have to do and it's hard for us but that's what his word says we see here that the spirit leads to life there's a second point here that begins in verse 14 it's that the Spirit affirms our sonship. Look at what it says as it begins. It says, for all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons. It continues on and it says that you have a spirit of adoption as sons and that the Spirit bears witness that you are children of God. But in verse 14, it starts by all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons. You see again there, it's this cooperation that takes place. The Spirit leads us, we have to follow. Think about that in your own life. Times that you have been leading somebody, times that you have been wanting somebody to follow you and they refuse to follow and you look back and you go, why don't you just follow me? I know the way. I know what's best. I know how to do this. If you would follow me, it'd be a lot easier. I, I think back to last semester. I have a German shepherd that passed away last semester and she was getting old. She had hip dysplasia and she was, she was going blind. So I would carry her up and down the steps and as I got to the bottom of the steps, I would put her down. And then I would say, come on, I have to lead her to the back door because she just couldn't see anymore. And, and so I, there was one particular day that I was leading her to the back door. And for some reason, she just veered off and went into my office instead of going to the back door. And I remember thinking to myself, just follow me. I know where I'm taking you. I'm not going to take you somewhere that you don't need to go. And I had to go back and I had to get her and lovingly get her attention and say, come on, let's go. We're going to go this way. Come on and lead her. How often is it that we turn and don't follow the Holy Spirit? Is it that we don't think the Holy Spirit is leading us to what's best? Is it that we lack faith? Is it that those temptations of the flesh cause us to think that that's a better way for us to go? When it's, Even if we rationally look at it with an eternal perspective, we realize that's not what's best for me. But so many times we don't follow the Holy Spirit. We take that detour off to the side because that's what we want. Because all of a sudden, I know better than you do, God. That's not the right way. This is the right way. And there we are, and there we sit. Until we are convicted, until we repent, until we begin to follow the leading of the Holy Spirit again in our life. And that's what we do over and over. Here, it says, for all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons. I can't help but read this passage without thinking back to the children of Israel. 
The children of Israel in Exodus 4.22, God says, Israel is my firstborn sons. He adopts the nation of Israel as he had promised Abraham. And so Israel, his adopted children, and he takes them and leads them out of slavery. And with the, the plagues that took place, he allowed Moses to, to tell Pharaoh to let the people go. And he leads them out and they're up against the Red Sea. And he parts the Red Sea so they walk across on dry ground. And he closes the Red Sea in and destroys Pharaoh's army. And he leads them out on the way to the promised land. But there's a wilderness to go through to get to that promised land. And even though he has saved them, even though they are called his firstborn sons, look and think about what happens in the Old Testament. In Exodus 16.2, they say, oh, we've been brought out here to starve to death. In Exodus 17.2, they say, we have no water. What are we going to do for water? And God opens up rocks and lets water come out of rocks so that they can have something to drink. And in Exodus 32.1, it says, who is this Moses? Who is this person that's leading us out? And where did he go? We don't even know where he is. And they complain again. And Numbers 11.1, it actually says everyone complained and everyone grumbled and they complained and murmured against what God had done. Numbers 11.5, they said, oh God, we're sick of this manna. Yeah, we needed food, you provided it, but we're sick of it. We're sick of the same old thing over and over again. In Numbers 14.2, they said we would have been better off if we had died in Egypt. And we read that. And we have to think, you people crazy? You were in slavery in Egypt, and God through his power miraculously saved you and led you out and daily provides sustenance for you and gives you water when you need water and gives you food when you need food and your clothes don't wear out and he's taking you to a promised land that is full of milk and honey and it will be a great land and all you have to do is follow him. And I think about my own life. I think about how God miraculously saved me. A sinner, hell-bent, running away in my own desire, rebelling against my Creator to say to Him, I know best. And how that day He overcame with His grace my rebellious heart in such a way that I repented of my sins and put my faith and trust in Christ. And I think about how many times I grumble or complain or don't follow in the Christian life. I suspect you can identify and relate to that as well. We're there. But this text tells us we were not given a spirit of fear. We were not called to fall back into slavery. What does that mean? We're not called to be enslaved to those sins. Those sins which we think bring us pleasure or we think are good for us. We actually find ourselves in bondage, enslaved to those sins. We can't get loose from those sins. But this text tells us that it's by the power of the Spirit we can put to death those things which have bound us, those things which enslave us, so that we don't have a spirit of fear, but we have a spirit that cries out, Father, Abba, Father, Daddy. I'm reminded of a story when I came home. I came home when I come home. Usually, my kids are there. They run up. They give me hugs. My my daughter's 11. She used to run and jump into my arms. Now she's a little older, and she comes up and gives me a big hug. But I would usually be greeted by my children and the dogs as soon as I would walk in the door, and I loved it. It didn't matter how much I was carrying at the time. It didn't matter what was happening. You always love that special greeting when you get home from work to say, "We are glad to have you home." Brightens any day. And and I had come home from a, an assignment out of town, and as I came in the door, I walked in the door, and there were my two dogs with tails wagging back and forth, excited to see me, and no daughter. And I thought to myself, this is odd. I don't like this. Went in, sat down, figured she was upstairs, didn't hear me coming in or something. I sat on our couch in our living room at the time, and it's one of those couches that had the pl uh, place for three people to sit. And so I sat down as I usually did on the far left side of the couch, my wife in the recliner, uh, TV up ahead, and I began to talk to my wife about what all had taken place in the trip. And I see that up our staircase, which was to the right, it would go up, it turned, and would go up to the second story. I see some hair begin to come out from the side of the staircase, and I see my daughter peek out, and I see her eyes. And I look over as I see her eyes and she begins to tuck back into the side. And I think in my mind, perhaps we're playing peekaboo. And you understand that when they're at like age four, five or six, they don't understand that 
that they think if they can't see you, you can't see them. They don't understand that if hair's hanging out or something, you still know they're there, that type mentality. And so I see her hair still hanging out, and I see her peek out again, and I look back up there to catch her, and she jerks back again, and hair's still hanging out the side. I still see even a little hand as it's out here. And she peeks out again, and when she peeks out again, I realize we're not playing peekaboo. She's not laughing. She's not giggling. She's not doing any of the normal things as we would play our games. And so I say to her, Rachel, come down. She comes down the stairs, and she comes down like this. Now, what does that mean? Means you're in trouble, right? So she comes down like this. She comes to the edge of the couch. I'm on the far end. Here's like the edge, and she, she kind of squeezes just past the edge of the couch and sits down as far away from me as humanly possible and still sit on the couch. Pinky's still in her mouth. I say, Rachel, what's wrong? She says, I'm in trouble. I said, I know that. Profound fatherly wisdom there, right? But what did you do? I ate candy and hid the wrappers. I couldn't quite make out what she said, so I looked to my wife for some interpretation of the tongues that had just took place. And Just kidding, I'm just joking. But I, I looked to my wife, and my wife said she ate a bunch of candy, hid the wrappers up on top of the cabinet in one of the white decorative bowls that we only use when special guests come around, and that weekend, special guests had come around. And so we pulled down those decorative white bowls to find out that this large bowl used for serving had candy wrappers overflowing into the top. Now, those of you who are parents, you know exactly what my first thought was. That's funny. I mean, <laughs> you know we think it. We don't say it in, out loud to our kids because we can't. But, but I began thinking in my mind at least, that's hilarious. You ate all that candy and hit it up top. And, and then my next thought is, that's just dumb. We have a trash compactor right beside. You could have lifted it up, buried it under there, closed it down. And then, you know, I'm sitting there wanting to laugh, but you can't do that. Because as a dad seeking to guide my daughter to the ways of the Lord, I understand I have to deal with the deceptiveness that's in our heart. I don't really care about the chocolate. I think that's funny. She would have been much better off if she just come ask me if we could eat chocolate together because I enjoy any excuse to eat good chocolate, right? She would have gotten more chocolate eating it with me while we were watching TV than she would have sneaking it by herself. But she doesn't quite understand that at that age. And, and so I have to deal with the deceptiveness in her heart because that's what will ultimately ruin her life one day. So she gets in trouble. This daughter that I have already demonstrated to you, I would die for son up for, is on the far edge of the couch in fear. Why? Because she's disobeyed. She's been deceptive. She's done something wrong. She has a spirit of slavery to her sin, a spirit of fear, and that is not what I want. What do I want? I wanted my daughter at the door to give me a big hug. I want to love on her and to give her chocolate and other great things in life and for her to succeed and to do amazing things to God's glory. How many of you, right now, if you look at your life, you're sitting on the very edge of God's couch. You squeezed in here this morning. You squeezed in and sat down. But you are on the edge of God's couch. And he is far away from you because you have deceptiveness and sinfulness that is separating you from a loving father who, unlike me, as a fallen father who loves in a fallen way to the best of my ability, he loves you infinitely and perfectly. How many of you are separated from the God who loves you in that way because of your slavery to sin and your own sinfulness? Now contrast that image with the image of me and my daughter at the zoo and looking at the lion exhibit. And if you've ever been to the lion exhibit, when they do one of those unexpected roars where they just let out one of these bellowing roars that reverberates through your body and your bones. Uh, we were there, and I have to admit, I was doing a little bit of taunting because I always like to, to get the animals to do those type things. But this lion let out this roar. And when this lion roared, my daughter goes from standing flat-footed on the ground to jumping up with legs around, arms around my neck, and I'm grabbing a hold of her and her head is tucked right here into my neck and she looks at me and I say to her what every father has to say at moments like that don't worry I'll protect you now, you all know good and well if the lion came out of the cage and got loose 
the only thing I could do is say run and let the lion eat me, right? I mean, that's it. That's the best I've got. But still, that's what we do. At that moment, my daughter didn't look at me and say, Father, I would like to see the paperwork that demonstrates that you are truly my adoptive dad. Can you show me that paperwork now, please? She's never once asked. Why not? Because there's a spirit in her that testifies to her, and I'm daddy. And that if she needs protecting, I'll do all I can. If all I can is lay down my life, I will do all I can. And this text tells us that we have a spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry out, Abba, Father, that the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God. And just like my daughter knows that I would die for her and that I would give my life, we know because the Bible has told us we have a God that loves us in such a way that he gave us his son who did give his life. He did die for us at sundown, and he went to the grave, and three days later he conquered death and got back up out of the grave, and he has ascended to the Father, and he has sat down at the right hand of the Father, and he sat down because the work is finished. It is accomplished, and he is coming back for us one day so that we can live and reign forever with him. And that's the God that we're here this morning to serve and to worship. A God who loves you beyond your wildest imaginations. Who, if you've repented and believed, has adopted you into his family. He cries out, Abba, Father. Mark, verse 14, chapter 36. Jesus. In the garden. Blood trickling down from his forehead. As his greatest, most desperate moment of the crucifixion awaits. And he pleads out to his father and he cries out to him, Abba, Father. That's where we see these words in the pages of the New Testament. And it should bring to mind for us those moments where we feel that sin overwhelming us with a tsunami of temptation that is so great that we think there is no way I can withstand, that it's in those moments, those desperation moments, that we too should cry out, Abba, Father. Remove this cup from me. We cry out for the power of the Holy Spirit living within us that by God's power we put to death those temptations of our sinful flesh so that we can live a victorious life in the Spirit. The Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs. Oh, you think about that promise just for a moment this morning. I'm a preacher. My kids can expect to get very little in the way of an earthly inheritance from me. Some of you are in the very same situation. But this says we are heirs of God. Joint heirs with Christ. Who's our father? He created everything you see. And universes you can't. Is he trustworthy? Oh, yeah. His word's the same yesterday, today, and forever. He doesn't change. His word is true. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but his word stands sure forever. You can trust him. Is he loving? Oh, yeah. He loved us so much in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He loved us to reconcile rebels to himself. That's the God. That we serve. That's the inheritance that awaits. It says, provided we suffer with him. You say, wait a second. I didn't sign up for the Christian life to have suffering. You mean there's going to be suffering in the Christian life? That's what the word says. Yes, there will be suffering. 
We cannot expect to go through life and live life as though we're just adding features to our new car or a luxury Christianity. The Bible tells us over and over again, take up your cross and follow Him that you will suffer, but be of good cheer because the Lord has overcome this world in John 16, And here it tells us, provided we suffer with Him, we suffer with Him in this life, in this temporary life, because there is an eternity that awaits and we'll be glorified with Him. We don't come to Christ because we think it's going to make life easy. We come to Christ because He's worth it and His grace is glorious and He is a God that has redeemed us even though we've rebelled against Him. It's the truth of the gospel. He is a God worth glorifying and here we suffer on this life, but this is not the end. There is an eternity that awaits where we will be glorified with Him. Are you living life in the Spirit? That's the call, the question that you need to ask yourself, that you need to ponder today is, are you living life in the power of the Spirit? We all know the temptation comes. So how do we do this? What can I offer you? What steps of practical application to put in your mind to think upon I'll give you three very briefly as we walk through life and we understand that temptation is going to come. First, we recognize there's a spiritual war. We understand that our flesh tempts us to do things that we should not do. We understand that our world and our culture sometimes pulls us to do things that are not right. We recognize these are spiritual wars that are taking place. There is a spiritual war. If you have not recognized that yet, you have to recognize the existence of a spiritual war. Number two... We have to realize it's only through the power of the Holy Spirit. We can't do this in and of ourselves or we will end up with wretched person that I am. So it is through the power of the Holy Spirit that we resist temptation and sin. And number three, we rely on God and cry out to our Abba Father. Daddy, help me resist this. Father. Be with me in this temptation or this time of discouragement or this struggle. We recognize there's a spiritual battle. We realize it's only through the power of the Holy Spirit. And we rely on God and cry out to Him. The adoption story that I told you about six months or so later, we were finalizing that adoption. and We were in a notary public's office there in Texas and we were sitting in the office and he had to verify that we were who we said we were. And we were on a conference call with a judge in Florida. This judge in Florida went through this long speech about how if uh, I have paperwork in front of me, Mr. White, once I sign this paperwork that's in front of me, she's going to be yours whether you like it or not. When she does bad things and comes home late and when she does things that you don't like, she's still yours. You can't give her back. Once I sign this, it's all said and done. And he goes through this long list. And I'm sitting there in an office in Uh, Texas and my sinful nature wells up inside of me a little bit and I respond uh, inappropriately and say to your honor I say to him isn't that the point of adoption to which him not seeing me knowing that I'm a clean-cut respectable individual but over a telephone decides okay Mr. White let me read this to you again and he starts over and again reiterates to me the fact that you can't give her back I understand what's going on. I respectfully say, yes, sir, your honor. I understand and accept the responsibility. Thank you. I meant no disrespect. Okay, I have signed the paperwork. It's stamped. It is hereby official. I leave that day, and my wife gives me a hard time about frustrating judges thousands of miles away and how I have gifts in that nature, and I do not exercise them quite so frequently. And I begin to ponder, though, Why did the judge feel the necessity of imploring me that I can't give her back? I began to think about all the ways we use the term adoption in our culture. You adopt a pet. If you don't like the pet, take the pet back. Give the pet away. We even do things more frivolous than a pet. We adopt Cabbage Patch dolls that get stuck in closets, and we have certificates on them. And it's not just Cabbage Patch dolls. There's these new birds that make noises, that have names, and they have little adoption certificates. And my daughter got one for Christmas, and it was a little, I mean, it was a cheap, cheesy adoption certificate. And I'm supposed to fill that thing out, and I got that thing in front of the whole family. I shredded the thing and put it in the trash compactor and mashed it down to make sure they knew that is not what adoption is all about. 
Adoption is not a flippant decision that we make. It is a theological reality that when you are adopted into the family of God, you cannot be unadopted. You are adopted as sons. It is a legal declaration, justification, just as if you have never sinned, that once you are saved, you are in the family, never to be kicked out of the family. And with an adopted daughter, I'm probably a little too sensitive to that fact. But I wonder, is there anybody here today that maybe you struggle too frequently with your own salvation? Maybe you just need to claim the fact that you have been adopted as a son of the king. And you're in the family. And once you're a child of God, you don't get kicked out. It's not about who you are. It's about who he is. But you have to be adopted. How do you get adopted into the family of God? It is repenting of your sins and placing your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. It is crying out and saying, God, I'm a sinner in need of a Savior. I believe in you and I want you to save me. That's adoption. The gospel. Adoption is at the heart of the gospel. Are you living life in the power of the Spirit? Let's pray. God, today we come to you and just thank you, Father, for you are a great and glorious God. You are a God who loves us unconditionally with an everlasting and faithful love. You are a good God and you are a good, good Father. And Lord, today, may we examine our own life. May we live life in the power of the Spirit to put to death those deeds of the flesh. May we not live in a spirit of slavery or fear, but may we recognize that you are a good Father and a good, loving God. And may we cry out to you when we are in need of help. And Lord, may we live a life that honors and glorifies you. May we suffer with you so that we may one day be glorified with you. God, we love you. We ask for your help when we need it. So today we examine our lives to be honest with you about where we are. It's in Jesus' name that I pray.